millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Welcome to another episode of the Gary Hour. I'm your host, Gary Levitt. This week I talk to screenwriter and actor, Mr. Patrick Devani. We talk about his writing and his creative process. We talk about him beating alcoholism, depression, self-medication, all that fun stuff. This episode is brought to you by Future Moments, makers of mobile apps for content creation. If you're a musician, a podcaster, a voiceover artist, go to the App Store and search for Future Moments because they probably have an app that'll make your life simple. Have a look at the show notes for links to the guest and uh, how you can leave a review because we like that. And uh, most of all, hope you enjoy. Drinking of the water. Yes. <laughs> All right. Patrick Devaney, you have a uh, very uh, impressive resume. It's quite long. Uh, you've been a musician. Yes. You've been a sculptor and a painter. True. And now you are an actor and a screenwriter with over 30 screenplays? Uh, yeah, just over, yeah. Okay. So I want to start with a broad question. Sure. <clears throat> All these creative outputs. Which satisfies you the most? Um, I would have to say at the very... Lately, it's been completing a really good performance as an actor. Mm -hmm. That's the one thing that I've really started to focus in on the most. Does it matter if they're your lines or anyone else's? No, not at all. I I actually prefer someone else's. Why is that? Uh, Because I I have a hard time, if I'm doing my own work, not being me. It's mm-hmm. hard. If I'm writing, sometimes I'm writing in my own voice, right. and that's kind of difficult to do. Um, but um, with somebody else's, then I can really try to interpret what they were saying, and that makes it more fun for me. Is there a sort of freedom, like similar to a lot of musicians say, it's easier to sing someone else's song than your own because there's just less 
baggage that comes with that? I, I think so. I think there's a, there's a good point in that. Um, I think that uh, my own stuff, it's easier to, it's easier to say because I, I've, I've read it so many times in my head mm-hmm. and in front of me. Yeah. Um, but the more joy I get out of it is from doing someone else's work and them saying, well, listen, you really got it. You yeah. Know? And, that's, and that's a big rush yeah. you know, for me. Um, on the production end, though, I think that, that overall when that final edit comes in, because I, I, I always edit my own work. Right. When that finally comes in and you can see that final, it's, I, I liken it to sculpting. It's like that final sculpt, that mold of the film that you want to make. Once, once you see that and you know it's done, right. it's wonderful. I had, a, I had an art teacher that taught me a very valuable lesson. He said, listen, there's, there's a, my painting teacher in college, he said, there's no such thing as a finished painting. The painter just decides when he's going to stop painting. But they're never done. And that, yeah, and that's the hardest thing to know is when to stop. Right, exactly. Um, and, and you have to look at it and say, okay, this may never be done. A song may never be finished. There's always one thing more you can do in production, but you have to decide when to put the brush down. Yeah. Do you have that problem <clears throat> writing screenplays? That's a little bit easier. <clears throat> um, I, can, I can know when a story is done. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, I think that, that there's always room to go back and add certain, certain things. I have multiple revisions of a lot of scripts. If I don't have them done, I like to go back after a while and, re- and redo them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a feature script out right, out right now. Um, it's, been, it's had seven revisions. I started writing this thing seven years ago. Yeah. And now it's, it's bouncing around in the festivals, which is really good. Right. But, uh, and, I, and I can't perfor- afford to produce it because I need about 300 grand for it. <laughs> but, but yeah, just uh, going back and making little revisions and little things. And, you know, but if it was set in stone, if someone wanted to produce it, then it's done. That is the tricky thing with films. You write, you write a great screenplay, then you got to get all the actors. It's such a grand production that costs so much money to even produce, even on a low budget if you have a lot of actors. Is that frustrating? Because as a stand-up, it's like if I think of a joke or a bit, I can go try it that night and get my immediate gratification. Where if you write a screenplay, when do you get that gratification? When you're done with the screenplay? When you've seen it on screen? Um, it, it all depends. Uh, when, when I finally see people doing the lines, I finally see, like, maybe like the first, <clears throat> excuse me, but the first uh, 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 read-through on the script, the first, the first rehearsal for that, Yeah, that's always a rush because seeing them doing that is just, it's just amazing. Do you sometimes so, like, great, screenplay's good, I don't need to produce it? Oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> I've, I've, I've done that. I mean, the one that I have out right now, the, the, the feature, um, uh, someone's already spoken to me about, you know, th- we may have someone looking at it. Yeah. And I'm like, great run with it yeah and uh, if i can play a part in it that's great mm-hmm. you know i just found out that a short film um that i that i that i wrote a friend of mine came to me with a story and said you know i, I want i have this idea but i'm not really a writer what do you think about it and this is this was a couple of months before i wrote my film impervia mm-hmm. and i wrote it out for him and he loved it and i gave it to him and this was years ago and i just recently found out that maybe someone interested in producing it Super cool. And it's, 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 it's great. I mean, I never thought that anything would come of it. I just did it really for a friend of mine um, who had helped me in the past. And he was, he's saying, listen, we, we may have someone doing this. And I was like, great. And he goes, I want to clear it with you first. I'm like, listen, if you can get it done, run with it. Give me writer's credit. And yeah. if I could play one of the parts, that's great. But if you can do it, awesome. Do it. Knock that's, it out. That sounds like an interesting creative uh, project to take someone's story or even a book and make a screenplay out of it, kind of break it down into characters. And I imagine you're changing the medium of it a little bit. So, 
So. Yes, uh, um, somewhat. Um, I just had an experience with this. Um, we're, we're filming a new film in November called Identity Check. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a film about um, uh, either an alternate world or a future world where who you are as a person, your entire identity, can be bought and sold like any other commodity. Cool. And, the, and the film takes place in a very high, high stakes match between these two multi-billionaires, one of whom is buying all of the identities of another. And it's going to be really, really fantastic when they do it. I got the, the best cast in the world for this thing. This sounds like <clears> perfect <throat> for now because identity theft and it's also a bit of like a Black Mirror sci-fi kind of thing I'm getting. Yeah, exactly. It's so tricky because you write something that's inspired by the cultural now, perhaps. Like you're like inspired by what's going on and then you write it. But by the time you finished, you finished writing it, get the actors, you film it, you get all the post-production done. It could be years. It, it, re- it really could. I was I was scheduled to do a different film this November, mm-hmm. and um, it was it was this <clears throat> bizarre genetic nightmare world. And and when I really looked at what I had, I had the location for it. I had the people. I had the crew. I just didn't have the funding to do it properly. I could do it, but it would be a much watered down version of it. And I didn't want to do that because the right. story is too cool. So I I was it was, it's funny the, the the origin of this one. Um, I was actually on my way to perform um, a wedding for my creative partner, Lauren Lazetis, right? Who's now Lauren Biazzi. What do you mean perform <laughs> a wedding? I'm a, I'm a licensed minister. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, so I was actually going to marry her to her now husband. Okay. And on the way there, my wife, Gina, had said to me, you know, I had this crazy, I had this crazy dream. Um, I went to my doctor and it was somebody else, but he called himself by his, the doctor's name. And, and I said, well, who are you? And he says, oh, I bought his practice. and I also bought his personality. And we were on the way to the wedding, and I was like, wow, that's fantastic. I'm like, that would make a great movie. Mm-hmm. And then I started thinking about the story. As I'm going over the lines for the wedding, and I'm waiting for the bride to arrive, I went to the men's room, and when I came out, the entire script blasted into my head. Wow. And I went, oh, oh, there it is. And I went outside, and I told my wife, I said, listen, that, that dream you had, I think I have the entire script. Like, it's just sitting in my skull, but I can't talk about it now because we got to do this wedding. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know? so, of course, you left the wedding to go right, and they're I still unmarried. Did. Yeah, yeah. And Lauren hasn't spoken <laughs> to me since. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you guys get out of here. Um, no, it was, it was, it was great. And, and when I told her about it later on, I'm like, listen, you know, you're never going to believe what I did at your wedding. <laughs> she had a good laugh <laughs> about it. And I offered her one of the leading roles and she took it like that. So oh, that's great. Yeah. So she's, she's going to be playing, you know, one, one of the attorneys arguing the settlements on, you know, who can buy who. And your wife gets mm-hmm. co-writing credit. I she imagine. absolutely does. Actually, <laughs> original story by Gene Alvarez. So, cool. So let's, let's, I want to dive into your history because I, I sense from your intensity that there is a lot. <laughs> Of history behind behind you yeah this there's there's a bit um yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah all right it says in your bio that you played music in the 80s you're a musician yeah i was um a keyboardist and a bass player from um from the early 80s on mm-hmm. i had my first band in uh, in 19 <laughs> 1981 yeah and um i've been playing ever, i was playing for most of the 80s performing live but I, I caught that you studied painting in college. I did study painting in college for a while. Yeah. Um, after, uh, after my music career kind of died out by the end of the, end of the 80s. Oh, you went um, back to college? I went back to school in 1990. Okay. And, and uh, I spent the next uh, five and a half years there. Okay. Uh, getting a degree in cultural anthropology, which really helps filmmaking so much. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's, it's not even really that practical, is it? <laughs> no, no, no. It's not in the least. But yeah. uh, it's a fascinating thing. And I was thinking maybe going on to teaching, but 
that mm-hmm. never materialized. So coming out of high school, you wanted to be a musician. Oh, coming out of high school is all I wanted. All I was doing was playing in bands. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't even thinking about going to college. Um, Queens College accepted me. Mm-hmm. So just to make my mom happy, pretty much, I said, okay, well, she really wanted me to go to school. So I figured I'd give it a year and I went. But I was only, I was constantly playing in bands. So you were born and raised in New York? I was born on 77th Street in Manhattan uh-huh. and, uh, in the late 60s. And I've, I've been here ever since. Mm-hmm. I've lived somewhere in New York City ever since and now i'm on the actual literal literal physical legal limit of new york city yeah. before it becomes long island you don't really have that new york accent i i, I try not to do it too much but you know <laughs> it's it's there yeah. oh oh it's definitely there but <laughs> yeah i try not to do it too much but um uh, yeah because because it, it comes across so strongly yeah yeah you know, so i try to like keep it back a little bit but now, now i sense that you have a taste of the road life as a musician um, I do uh, not not so much for my own career, uh-huh. but but um, uh, in the early '90s, uh, a friend of mine who was one of the like most renowned roadies in the country, mm-hmm. uh, he was like, "Listen, we need some spots on this uh, tour for the Smithereens." He's like, "Why don't you come and do this?" So I became their bass tech for almost two years. You so you're mm-hmm. the Smithereens bass tech, yes, and you're just mm-hmm. touring with them. How how long were the tours? Um, it was they they were recording um, an album called "A Date with the Smithereens" and. And they were doing one-off shows. So there would be a show um, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then there'd be two shows in Mississippi. And then a week would go by, or two weeks would go by, and then there'd be a show in New Jersey. So I was in school at the time. Uh-huh. So when I wasn't in school, I was bouncing around you know, the country with this amazing rock band. Yeah, how did you manage going to classes and then just having a fly? <clears throat> it, was, it was difficult. I missed a lot of classes because we would drive the U-Hauls everywhere. Right. So, um, but it was funny. Like, 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 oh, right. The band probably flew, but you had oh, to drive. Oh yeah, the road. The roadies were with the crew. The roadies were with the, with the equipment and the crew. Yeah. You know, in the rear with the gear. So that's what we would do, and we would drive literally all over the country just doing this. And uh, and uh, yeah, my friend Kevin, uh, who's sadly no longer with us, he's he was uh, he's an amazing amazing roadie. I mean, he was he was a roadie for the Sugar Cubes when they were when they were touring with you too, and he knew everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, so and that was where he. Uh, he kind of uh, was mainly with the, with the Smithereens and with King Diamond, so that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I think people people talk about the rock star lifestyle and on the road and all the drug use, drinking and partying that goes on. Yep, but it's rarely talked about that. That's kind of also happening with the roadies constantly. Um, <laughs> um, you, you can't do too much because you do have to be up really early and you are carrying heavy equipment and you're doing a lot of stuff, but. Um, to give you an example, I mean, we were, we wound up, we pulled into uh, Jackson, Mississippi mm-hmm. and we immediately hit the bar in the hotel and, and we started talking to the barmaid and she, her friend was the concierge and they couldn't meet the band. So they all took us out uh-huh. and they brought us to house parties all over Jackson. We saw the, you know, the governor's mansion and, you know, all this crazy stuff, but we wound up in these house parties and all of a sudden it's two in the morning and I'm like, you know, we have to unload you know in four hours yeah and uh and yeah it's like you know the, the, a lot of women are just happy to meet you know guys from the band even if you're not in the band right i mean those stories are true and it's a lot of fun you know yeah. and i was i was 24 years old at the time so i was having a hell of a good time so you, you're, you're <laughs> drinking you're partying a lot a lot yeah well you would you say you're out of control yeah. 
Um, I would say that uh, that in general, my drinking was out of control and my partying was out of control until until maybe about three or four years ago. Okay, but but, um, but at that time, uh, I couldn't imagine going anywhere without without booze and doing that kind of stuff. But the, but the actual sets themselves were always dry. Like there was no drug use whatsoever. There was one guy that came on the crew with us who got high before before tune up, mm-hmm. and we put him on a van. We sent him his ass home, and that was it. Why was that order of the band? Um, I don't know if it's order of the band. It was the order of my friend Kevin, who was the road manager, mm-hmm. and he was like, "Listen, we can do whatever we want, but when we are carrying equipment, when we are doing this, we are straight." And I learned that, and that's why I run straight sets now, mm-hmm. like on my like on my film sets. Um, it's completely dry. People, we can all go out and hang out afterwards, but mm-hmm. you know, you know, and there are people that say, "See, listen, even even going for like lunch, don't have a beer. Right. If you drink and don't come back, right." It's you mentioned that. your roadie friend that got you the job. Right. You mentioned that he's he's no longer with us. And um, yeah, no, he uh, he's he's been gone about eleven years ago. Uh, about eleven, almost damn, almost twelve years now. Um, Casualty um, of the road? Uh, no, um, uh, he he was actually uh, his, his personality started getting strange, and we started getting a little bit distant. He got a little distance from his wife, and uh, he was on tour with Moby in mm-hmm. Australia mm-hmm. and he just collapsed backstage and it turned out that he had a series of brain tumors that had been growing for years and none of us knew and that's what was changing his personality that's what changing his personality and making him you know someone that was it was not him and we knew there was something wrong but we just didn't know what it was right and um and uh, they were inoperable and within 2 weeks he was gone Wow. You know, a wonderful guy, um, one of my best friends in the world, and taught me a lot. He was he was ten years older than me too, so he taught me a lot of the things that the things he told me that were going to come in my life. They all came true. <laughs> He's like, you're going to see ten years from now, this yeah. is going to happen. And he was dead serious. And yeah. no one caught the growing tumors. Mm-hmm. No, no one had any idea. It, it, it happened so fast, and no one understood. You know, he was always a strange guy, and he was. The best artist I've ever met in my life, like like graphic artist, physical, mm-hmm. and as far as sculpting and painting, that kind of medium, best I've ever met in my life. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he's just all around wonderful guy. And when he wasn't managing art galleries, he was he was on the road with Motorhead. You know, so well, it's. <laughs> I think that's a growing study: the tumors in the brain. There's, uh, you know, they say like a lot of pedophiles they just have a tumor in their brain, and then you could take them out. You could cha- basically change people's personality. I think they're practicing with prisoners where you can yeah i i, I could I, stick I, my thumb inside your brain and turn you into a different person i think there's a lot to that <laughs> i think that the, the road to get to where how to do that is pretty scary and then what do you, right. what what do people want to erase from other people it's like, yeah you know? this, this is a sci-fi situation yeah right there. yeah i mean if, if they're there i mean there it happens I mean, there are times when people have have tumors and and you know, a very 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 good friend of mine um, just went through this. He had a tumor growing in his head for 10 years and no one knew his, his personality just became more and more bizarre. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was benign. It mm-hmm. was just an active whatever. And, uh, and uh, he, finally, he finally collapsed and they saved his life. You know, and he's, he's around today and he's recovering. He's doing a wonderful job. Is you he know? back to how he was ten years ago? Uh, he's he's incredibly close. He's really really back and um, and uh, he's doing fantastic. Actually, he's really he's really doing good considering that you know we weren't sure if he was going to make it or not. I wonder mm-hmm. if that ever happens where someone has a tumor and then they mm-hmm. take it out and it turns out like the tumor was the reason the person was a nice guy. Mm-hmm. 
and they take the tumor out and the guy's just a jerk i it, it, it could absolutely happen <laughs> um um, I, I kind of go through that. Um, you have to keep getting my morbid, uh, you know. And then this one died. But, but um, um, my my mom uh, has been having uh, tiny strokes going back to the early '90s, and we had, had no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, her heart goes into AFib and it, it creates all these things, but she can't feel it, and it's cr- and it's created dementia. In her. What is AFib? Um, uh, Afibrillation in, in her heart. The um, from what I understand, the the, the blood flow um, um, alternates in the heart, mm-hmm. and it can actually pool blood in the in the bottom. Um, uh, ventricles okay. of, of the heart, and and that can congeal. And when it goes back to normal, it sends these little blood clots flying through the system. And right. people have this, and and most of the time, most people can feel it, you know. But she can't feel it, so we had no idea what was going on with her. But um, it's it, the multiple strokes and and all this all these issues. She it's actually made her a happier person. She's uh, you know a lot of the bad memories she's had. She's forgotten a lot of these things. Huh. And it really is amazing. I, mean, I just saw her before I came here, so it's you know. And she's uh, going to the senior center. They're going out playing dominoes and things. And she's happy and she's smiling and she sees me. And that's not how it was when we were growing up. So yeah. <laughs> it's actually, like, like what you said, it's actually kind of made her a little bit different, you know, better person. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. or ha- not, I don't want to say better, a happier person. It's part of that because she's just more grateful to be alive? Um, I, I honestly don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, hard, it's hard to track what she's thinking and what she's feeling. Right. Um, but she just seems more accepting, yeah. more happy, um, uh, uh she was never really a judgmental person, but there's no judging at all mm-hmm. in her. She's just happy to be, you know, going through from one day to the next. And she, you know, goes to her center and she hangs out and her aide comes and then she sees me and, you know, it's that kind of thing. But yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. It's pretty interesting watching that process. Yeah. You know, as long as she's happy and she's, and she's not, you know, in any pain, I'm like, I'm, I'm good with it. You know, <laughs> we're all going to be there. Probably. Probably. <laughs> if we're lucky, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If we're if we're lucky and we can uh yeah. As long as everything is, is, is working, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean yeah. I don't mind being, you know, a hundred years old if I if I can still think about that, knowing that I'm a hundred years old. Right. You know, other than that, give me another ten, fifteen years and I'm good. <laughs> yeah, you don't the quality of life is definitely a big factor, I'd say. Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Speaking of quality of life, so you're touring all over the place. <laughs> yes. And uh you're drinking every day. I'm drinking a lot. Um, uh-huh. I spent uh, I, I spent um, uh, most of 1986 into 1988 uh, pretty much drunk every day. Mm-hmm. Um, anything mm-hmm. else? Um, well, a, a variety of things. Yeah. Uh, every, anything short of uh, pretty much shooting heroin mm-hmm. was uh, was game. Yeah. Um, I never really did that, but um, and like and like you know I, I mentioned my friend before. You know he, you know he was he was uh, they were giving him crack and they called it rock and he didn't even know what it was. Uh-huh. You know he was hanging out at CB smoking this and he's like, wait a minute, this this is that crack stuff. Wait a minute, I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I go back with that stuff, but but uh, not not too heavy in things. Um, uh, some things I knew that I really liked a lot. Mm-hmm. So I knew that I couldn't go near them like often, what? you know. Um, uh, cocaine was a wonderful feeling. Yeah. A far too nice a thing for me to ever want to be regularly doing this. Especially you know? for a drinker, because you could do a bunch of coke and then not even feel your alcohol, so you can keep drinking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that happens, you know. I mean, I would go, um, uh, one, of my, one of my good friends in this, uh, in this life, who, 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 uh, who unfortunately did succumb to this, uh, my buddy Chris File, um, 
Uh, I used to go to after hours with him all the time, and we used to, I mean, it was 11 o'clock in the morning, we'd find our way back. It was a great story one night, uh, because he would do a lot of blow, and he he wouldn't, if he was still with us, he wouldn't care if I told the story, because Uh everyone knew, and he did it in front of everybody. Um, He was a 400-pound biker. He didn't give a shit about anything. (laughs) That sounds um, like a recipe for disaster. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But but a brilliant guy, Um, uh, um, uh, an instructor at the French Culinary Institute. I mean, he was this, Mm -hmm. all these dichotomies, all these guys have these amazing, like, like you know straight jobs and then they're just like these absolute lunatics yeah. but like but like also <laughs> nice people you know it's like i wouldn't open spend my time with someone who was nasty you know right, it's like right. just he was out of his mind but a funny son of a bitch and he brought me down to this after hours by jfk airport and it was a saturday night and the bar normal bar we were at closed at four and we wound up in this place and it had to be 10 30 11 in the morning and we we're falling out of this place he had already done an eight ball by himself and i was drinking i was still drinking whiskey at 9 a.m and we fall out of this little door of this of this hidden after hours illegal bar and there's an entire family in front of us going to church uh-huh. <laughs> and we look at them and they look at us and they have this little old grandmother with her gigantic easter hat on right and she looks at her she looks at us and she says it turns to her grandson and she says you see now that's the devil <laughs> and, and we were like Yes, ma'am. <laughs> you know, I couldn't even argue it. And the whole family just nodded at the grandma and they looked at us and they walked away. Uh-huh. I said to my friend, I'm like, this is messed up. He goes, yeah, she's not even wrong, though. I said, no, she's not. She she, she nailed us, man. <laughs> but, but at that moment, were you guys uh, experiencing a lot of joy or were you just like, oh, man, what are we doing? At that point, um, uh, we looked back at it years later and laughed about it. But at that point, I was just like... Yeah, grandma's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, we have to go home and re-examine our lives. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> and that was when I kind of knew, like, I'm, you know, this is this is a problem. You know, this uh-huh. is a problem. But I mean, this was also, you know, this was also like early two thousands. Mm-hmm. You know that, I, and I never addressed any of this issue. <laughs> you know? So, oh, so you were drinking for. <clears throat> Decades. Uh, I started drinking in the eighth grade. I started drinking in 1982. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and I've, I've almost drank myself to death twice. How, like, do, you, how do you drink yourself to death? What happened? Um, uh, you, you, uh, you drink um, constantly and an enormous amount of hard liquor mm-hmm. and then either pass out on your back or pass out by train tracks or something like that. Um, yeah, for my 23rd birthday, my friends wanted a reason to drink. And I was just like, well, I'm turned 23 today. And they were like, no, you didn't. So I sold my license. And they were like, oh, shit, you didn't. That's a great you reason. Know? It's a great reason. So it was buy- meant to be. Exactly. I, I, we, we wanted to get high, and here's yeah. the reason. <laughs> and uh, they bought me a bottle of Southern Comfort that I, can, that I drank pretty much on my own. Oh. And um, I, couldn't, I couldn't possibly sober up. I just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And, Would you um, black out? Um, I, I was trying to black out, and I couldn't, and I was crazy, and I couldn't sober up. And by the time I got back to my house, I couldn't sober up, and I was starting to freak out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took a, a kitchen knife, and I stabbed myself in the arm right there. Oh, you have a scar uh, on your forearm. Yeah, that's, how, that's my 23rd birthday scar. Yeah, I just stabbed myself almost to the bone. And, um, and then I freaked out because I'm bleeding everywhere. And I said, oh, okay, I better start calling people. So I, I called the biker guy that I just mentioned, and I called my buddy Joe Steven Case, and I called a bunch of other guys. And uh, Joe met me, and what he did was he brought me to the local bar <laughs> where they said, oh, it's your birthday. Here, have another drink. And, uh-huh. and our friend Norbert took a first aid kit and patched me up as best he could because yeah. I wasn't going to go to the hospital. And, did, and did, When you <laughs> stabbed yourself in the arm. It sobered me up instantly. It did, right? For maybe about a minute uh-huh. or two. 
And then I started going back into it. But I guess it was adrenaline or endorphins or whatever it mm-hmm. works. But whatever that was, it was like, yeah, that's that's what we got to do. You know, that makes sense to me now. Right. You know? Just um, keep stabbing myself. Yeah, if I if I can just keep stabbing myself, that time I get home, you know, <laughs> I'll leave home, get to the bar, come back, keep stabbing myself. Um, yeah, so that was my that was my shot, uh, stab, yeah. shot, stab, <laughs> yeah, yeah. stab, 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 stab. Um, yeah, so that was a lot of fun, and uh, and my poor buddy Chris, he lived in Long Long Beach, he dr- dr- speeding all the way up here, and the, the freaking you know Stadies caught him. And uh-huh. they gave him a ticket for speeding, trying to find my dumbass, and and yeah, I mean, and even then, it was like, yeah, this is business as usual, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I was I was smoking two and a half packs of cigarettes a day. I was coughing up blood, thinking this is perfectly normal. Uh-huh. Um, what, what were you pursuing? Hmm. Were you pursuing a career in anything, or you just? I wasn't pursuing a damn thing except except in my mind. I was still going to be this famous rock musician. Mm-hmm. I was still going to get there. I was just waiting for the right act. You know, because bands had always shown up for me. They'd always shown up. But a lot of those guys either became, you know, studio guys or they became or they became touring musicians or they gave it up. Right. So the bands that were always forming stopped forming. Mm. And I sat for my 20s and I pretty much waited for the next band to show up and it never showed up. Mm-hmm. And by the end of my 20s, I was like, well, what am I doing? What right. the hell am I doing waiting on this? You know, this is what <clears throat> year end of your 20s is. Um, and it was the twenties, so it would be uh, uh, late nineties, so so like ninety eight. Okay, so 90- the music industry <clears throat> is still pretty healthy. The music industry is pretty still healthy. Um, when when I was when I was uh, when I was at the height of my career, is mm-hmm. great. You'll, you'll love this. When I was at the height of my career. It was um, it was uh, uh, mid nineteen eighty seven. We were playing we were playing CBGBs. We were playing Bitter End, Bottom Line, playing every major place in New York except the Garden and Radio City. Yeah. We played everywhere, and it was wonderful. And uh, and uh, we had we had um, we had um, scheduled a gig at a Prince's Club out in Minneapolis and there were all these things were going to happen and it was wonderful going to Star Search they wanted us and I was like this is great we right. were turning down independent record offers we tur- this is how this is how like good this was Yeah. and our producer came to us and he was um, ex-army and he was stationed in, he was, he's from Seattle and he came to us and he goes listen guys I have an idea what we need to do is bring everybody out to Seattle because there is a music in, there's a music scene brewing there that mm. you guys it's going to take over the world and we all fell on the floor laughing oh no this is right before grunge this is this is in, this is like like may of 87 oh no and we laughed in his face to the point where like the guy stopped working with us like we just we couldn't believe how funny that sounded we were like what are we going to do play to cows in the rain like what are we going to do right right and then like all of a sudden i hear this album by a band called soundgarden and i'm like mm. what is this and yeah by 91 i mean you know what happened yeah so we always think about i saw I, every now and then i see that guy online i'm just like hey what's up you were right <laughs> ah he was really right <laughs> but he actually wants to bring us out there and, and make us part of that scene mm-hmm. you know and we were a funk band so it's like it was kind of like weird kind of combination but it was uh they brought us out there i wanted to do new wave i wanted to be depeche mode but the, all these guys wanted to do funk and it was fun right it was wonderful i love that music too and who knows how it would have changed you as musicians anyway um and and who knows um if i'd even be sitting here right now because because part of that whole scene out there was an enormous heroin scene right and the one thing i'd never done and you know after a while i would have done that too yeah probably. <laughs> you know and uh you know i look at how many musicians from that time period and from that area that i love so much and they're mm-hmm. gone yeah and a lot of it's drugs and a lot of it's depression, a lot of it's booze. And it's like, those are all my problems. <laughs> yeah, You know what else is gone is like a, a sound of a scene 
you know, like Seattle that had a scene, it was a sound happening because there was no internet. It was like all these people just like creating in an incubator. But now since everything is online, there's not really a scene. There could be a little scene of people making a certain sound, but it will get discovered pretty quickly once they put it online. It doesn't seem like I've heard of a sound of a, oh, there's this New York sound happening. There's right. this Chicago sound. I haven't heard of that since early 2000s I, the last thing I heard about like, in that kind of thing was like emo uh-huh. you know I mean like and, and, and that like from what I understand comes from like DC like the screamo stuff and like the emo stuff was like you know a watered down version of that or, right. know, as far as I understand it because I wasn't really part of that scene Yeah. but again scene you know like, like you said that's the last one I ever heard of Yeah. I don't know anything everything to me now is kind of just um, a very poppy with some type of hip hop or a, or a bastardization of hip hop mm-hmm. put in, right? And it just seems that way. Anything from you know from, from Taylor Swift on on down, you know, I mean, that's that's it. Just seems to be that old that generic kind of pop sound that even pop music back then, like when we were kids, had a different yeah. vibes to it. Yeah, but and there was now always it's all like the a same. yeah, there was always a cultural sort of sound happening. You know, in the sixties, everything was kind of flowery, and right. then it kind of morphed into something else, but. I mean, now it's just what it is, and we might not relate to it as much because we come from a place of actual musical instruments. That is true too, but I but I also come from a place of like like you know, um, like I said, you know, I want to be Depeche Mode. It's like mm-hmm. you know, I, I mean, I love synth bands, I love that kind of stuff because I was a keyboardist and I love that kind of thing. So it's like I can listen to like really old Texas blues, you know, or I can listen to Skinny Puppy, right. you know, which is th- those two things couldn't be any more farther yeah. apart. But or, or like craft work, you know. Yeah. But um. But yeah, I think that I think that there's a lot to that too. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if if bands are going in and recording those kinds of things. I think singers are recording over pre-recorded tracks. Right. And how and they don't even know the musicians that are in the room. They don't. They wouldn't care as right. long as there's a beat to it and there's and there's a sound to it. They can sing over that. I don't know if anyone's really, you know, getting into like, you know, I have to have this drummer on that or that bass player and this, you know, it's just like, what's the track? Okay, I'll sing now. Right, it's not a band with an organic interplay of hmm. sounds. And right, I don't, I don't think that exists, but I haven't been in the studio in ages, so mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, um, I'm sure but, everything mm-hmm. exists still. It might, right. uh, might not be mainstream, but right. That's I mean, like, changing. I mean, and then there's like always like you know like like retro throwback stuff, which is done in modern ways. I mean, one of my favorite you know recreation bands is um, um, Orange Alabaster Mushroom. I don't know if you ever listened to them. What are they called? The, the Orange Alabaster Mushroom. Uh-huh. And um, it's a it's it's a really like, like kind of like a nine inch nails thing. It's a one man band um, out of uh, Canada, and in, he's been I think he was doing this about fifteen sixteen years ago. But it sounds like nineteen sixty eight Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. It's totally perfect sixties psychedelia. Only it was recorded you know fifteen years ago. Yeah, and it's amazing. I listen to that all the time. I love it. Yeah, love it, there's you know? probably so much music out there mm-hmm. that we haven't even discovered. Yeah. Yeah, I suggest everyone go out and get and check out Orange Alabaster Mushroom. It's awesome. <laughs> um, but I, my favorite quote was uh, when, when it comes to music like this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Lemmy said it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he's no longer with us too. Um, but uh, Lemmy, someone asked him, you know, what's the you know you're you're a hard rock musician. What's the best music in the world? And he said, whatever you were listening to when you were 18, that's the best music in the world. Right, because it's formative, kind of yeah. helps you with your identity. Right, right. And, and 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 also, it's just, there's no way to answer that. You mm-hmm. know, what's the best music? I don't know. Right. What, what was the best music when you were just out of high school? 
Right. You'll always think that's the best no matter what I say. Well, what's the yardstick <laughs> for best music anyway? Right, exactly. Yeah. It's like, they, like there's poorly recorded music. Mm-hmm. There's poorly sung right. music. Yeah. But, you know, my, 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 my painting teacher I mentioned before, he said, listen, there are no bad ideas. There's a shitload of bad paintings, right. but there are no bad ideas. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, there's got to be true. bad ideas. You know, there, no, there, there are unfortunate ideas. Like, you right. know, like you know, like in life decision, there are bad ideas, but creatively, probably not. But, uh-huh. but you know, maybe, maybe there are. Okay, uh, maybe I could think of one or two I've had. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so it's the end of your twenties, and you're starting to realize, all right, this band thing might not be happening. Oh yeah, I realized right away. Um, I did. I did one thing in my in the nineties, which was great. Um, a friend of mine, Atomic Bride, he created this off Broadway play called The Shadow Trilogy. It was a, it, it was he was trying to bring like the Twilight Zone to live theater. Uh-huh. And he asked me to do the score for it, and I scored the entire play. Wow. And this was going back so far so so a while ago. Um, uh, we didn't have uh, the means to record to, to uh, CDs, so we had a series of cassette tapes that would trigger at certain times during the play. It was cool as hell. Yeah, you know. Um, and uh, I was interning at a, at a TV talk show at the time, so I was I was doing that, and then I was going to these rehearsals, and I was coming home and recording, and then in the morning going to my internship, then going to the rehearsals and coming back, and mm-hmm. and it was fun. And it was, it was like the last like thing I really recorded of my own music. And it was a whole um, whole new creative yeah. outlet for you. I'd never done that before, and and I'd never done it again. Uh-huh. It was just it was really really cool. How come you never mm-hmm. did it again? I never had the opportunity really, but I just also didn't have the drive. Like I'm sure that I could have got if I really wanted to, I could have gone out and done that. Right. And I just didn't just didn't take. You so know? what what year are we in when you're at the mm-hmm. end of your twenties? Uh, mm-hmm. We're um, uh, we're about to hit like ninety eight ninety nine. Um, 99 i i I had a I had a job it was very strange i had it for 10 years from 89 to 99 either part-time or full-time watching television for a living <laughs> this is like a dream job for many people it's it's it was it was pretty trippy it's a place called um audio video reporting we would watch the news all day long uh-huh and summarize what they said and if something someone was mentioned we had uh, salespeople going out and selling videotape copies of it to all their pr firms everything you can do with the google search today we were doing live Wow. And Google came along and destroyed the, the entire industry. Right, right. So I did that job for 10 years. And then after that, I was, I was looking for a job. And um, a family friend of mine, um, uh, this guy, uh, Emil Denworth, he was a Maris brother. He was, the, he was the principal of St. Agnes Boys High School in the Upper West Side. Mm-hmm. And he said, listen, um, I have a new finance director, and she doesn't know how to use a computer. I heard that you lost your job. And I said, yeah. He said, well, why don't you come in? And um, teach at the computer, and you can work for like two weeks, and I'll pay you ten bucks an hour off the books. Mm-hmm. And that turned into a month, turned into two months, and by that January, she had quit, and he gave me her job, mm-hmm. and I became the finance director of an all boys Catholic high school for the next seven years. Uh-huh. Now, this is probably <laughs> not in your dream. <laughs> no, not in my dream at all. And that was when I saw it saying, "Okay, I'm I'm 31 now. I'm 30, mm-hmm. 31." And I'm like, "Okay." Um, all the creative outlets in my life didn't work out. Here's an accounting job right. that's allowing me to learn accounting while I'm being an accountant. Which is like usually the example used for like when you give up. <laughs> yes. Just get that accounting job. <laughs> you just become a bookkeeper, damn it. Right. And, um, and, and I said, okay, I really, have to, I really have to start thinking about being an adult and growing up. And I have to stop all this nonsense. Yeah. And, and it was very bizarre because these are the same brothers who I had in high school. 
So some of my old teachers wound up on my payroll. That was really bizarre. And mm-hmm. some of the brothers used to like scream at me and stuff. Like I'm having business meetings with them. It's like, this is the hell happened to me. Yeah. You know, and I'm in a suit and tie every day. Yeah. You know, and I literally did that for seven years. And what <laughs> happened? Did you see yourself in the mirror one day and just was like, what am I doing? I was, I was drinking a lot even there. Um, I was, I was, um, eating terribly i was gaining mm-hmm. a lot of weight i think i hit almost 250 pounds at one point i was miserable now why and, do you think you're drinking a lot because it's obviously it doesn't come with the job like being a roadie <laughs> it, it it doesn't but you'd be surprised how much and the teachers of america are gonna hate me for this you'd be surprised how much you have to lubricate teachers to keep them cool because they're mm. also dealing with a lot of kids and a lot of pressure all year long right. you know um i give people people say like you know well, teachers get the whole summer off and they you know it's like it's like you know i also think teachers shouldn't bitch about that when they have to go back but at the same time i get why you need that time off you know it's like yeah. that february break we always got in, in school yeah they used to call it energy conservation week it has <laughs> nothing to do with that it was we we don't want to have a lawsuit so Oof. we have to give a week away from all these kids for these teachers yeah and let them go out and blow off some steam, you know. Um, uh, there were crazy things that went on there, and and two times, I actually had to take money out of petty cash to go and like and like you know get some teachers very well liquored up uh, and talk them out of suing the school. So it's, wow. yeah, you know, because these older brothers they say stupid things. Mm-hmm. They don't know, you know, like why it's inappropriate. You know, they live in seminaries all their lives, and now they're dealing with young women, t- female teachers, and they're not meaning to be insulting, but they do because they just are ignorant to it they don't have the social skills they don't have the social skills around it and they'll say things thinking that it's perfectly normal but it's like no that's really really not cool right so i used to have to sit down and talk to people and say listen you know please understand where this comes from and you do what you want but you know that was a weird part but um but some of the young men that we we saw through there i mean these amazing kids just amazing amazing kids was that nothing was that the rewarding part of the job hell yeah Mm -hmm. hell yeah that that that's uh i will never deny the whole warm fuzzies from uh (laughs) helping these kids who were you know they were all from upper manhattan and from the south bronx now do you think you were (laughs) drinking because you were just kind of unhappy um like were you drinking um, to escape my, my my drinking problems all come from uh undiagnosed and undealt with um, clinical depression. Okay. All of it. Um, mm-hmm. I've been clinically depressed since I was a child and it was just in the, that in the seventies, it was just like, you know, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and stop, stop complaining. Right, why, right. why are you sad all the time and shut up? And yeah. you know, that was the mentality. And I don't even blame my parents. They didn't know they, right. they were ignorant to it. Um, they but, didn't have Google. <laughs> they, they didn't have Google, which came and destroyed my job. No, <laughs> no, they, they it, it was, um, what I've been, what I was been doing and what I've always been doing is just constantly numbing my depression mm-hmm. with alcohol. I don't, I don't have, I don't have a physical um, addiction to it. A physical addiction to other things, and a f- physical addiction to tobacco. Instantly, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I can't. I, I haven't had a cigarette in twenty five years, and I can't even have a drag. If I have a drag, I'll be smoking a pack a week by the end of the next week. Uh-huh. It's that bad. The physical addiction was horrible. What about if you get some <clears throat> secondhand smoke to you? Um, I have flashbacks. I have, I have, I have, I have m- memories flash in front of my eyes of like living down on Rockaway Beach and smoking all the time and drinking yeah. and, and just and all, all that kind of stuff. I've, so the smoking um, and drinking are linked? <clears throat> oh, uh, badly. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So and if most you smell can, a beer or, or some mm-hmm. bourbon or something? That doesn't bother me because it's not so much um, of a physical thing. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, um, the mental thing is I, I, I would love to go out and have a couple of beers every now and then, mm-hmm. you know, I really would, but you know, I'm, I miss Guinness, you know, 
but um, I'm going on three years sober. Totally you sober. Know, not even a drop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, um, alcohol in uh, for medicinal uses. Um, some of my um, like allergy medications and things like that, they're alcohol-based. Oh, right, right. But it's like dropperfuls in water. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's not sit, throwing back shots of, yeah. you know, sure, it's medicine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's not shot, stab, shot, yeah, stab. Yeah, shot, stab. No, 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 no. Although yeah, that's, that's the end result that would happen. But <laughs> it's, it's funny when, I, when I'm at some of my jobs, you know, they say, hey, let's go get some beers. And I'm like, listen, you will thank me right now. For, you know, I, I, I'm making the world a safer place if I'm not drinking. So just, so you know. only three years. Though. I mean, mm. in the grand scheme of things, that's mm. not that long. No, no. But, but, but going on three, about two and three quarters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, AA, mm. all that stuff. No, I haven't, I haven't done any of that uh-huh. um, because I recognize what the problem was. Right. You know, I say, okay, this is what I am doing. Right. I know what I am doing now. You know, I mean, self medicating. You know, I've been self medicating since I was 13 years old. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just not good. Mm-hmm. That doesn't help anyone. You know, cures the and, symptoms, not the cause. Right, right. Yeah. You know, that, that whole thing, you know, sorrows float. Uh-huh. You know, and it's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, but that kind of. St- that that stuff, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, AA isn't it isn't something I need to be re- reminded of. It's not. I don't need a sponsor. I don't need reinforcements. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I have my wife. I look at her and I'm just like, does she want to put up with that? Right. You yeah. know, that's my sponsor. Yeah. So I'm just like, okay, does she, does she need this in her life? She certainly, most certainly, does not need this in her life. So, <laughs> <you> <laughs> Was know. she drinking with you? Mm. I'm sure you must have been. Um, uh, when we first met, yeah. uh, we used to put him back like crazy. Um, yeah. We were the we were the best man made of honor at our cousin's wedding, and in the in the the Rolls Royce with them going from the church uh-huh. to the reception, and we we drank a bottle of champagne. And we had, you know, I had an entire cooler of Guinness waiting because I didn't want to have bad beer. Wow. You know, and I, I had actually organized that with two of the other, um, the groomsmen who also wanted to have good beer. I mean, we right. literally had like, like 80 cans of Guinness waiting for us at this, at this wedding. It was nuts. There was no point to it, but. So you did know. you, did you substitute the alcohol with something else? Um, not yet. Mm-hmm. Not yet. Um, I, at least I don't think I have. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe you mm-hmm. have, maybe. Um, your out, your creative output has gone way up. I would imagine it really has, and um, the the writer's blocks that I used to have are gone. Uh-huh. Um, this 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 length of sobriety it also lets me remember certain things, not like bad things, like good things, like you know, like you know where I went with my dad one time, or things I haven't thought about in thirty years. Right. You know, like things I haven't thought about since I started drinking. It's like all of a sudden they're surfacing. And it's like, whoa, I remember this. And right. oh, my grandmother told me that. And, you know, these little memories. And that's kind of cool. And I can take things like that and pull from them. Mm-hmm. And that, and however many memories you have and whatever you can do, you'll always be able to pull into your stories. If you're going to be writing about certain things, it doesn't even matter if it matches up right. You can use different pieces of it and put that in there. Yeah. You know? have, you heard, have you heard that? I've always heard people that have written their own books say that everyone should write their own mm-hmm. story. That it's such a task of self-reflection and stuff like you're saying, stuff comes up, more memories come up, and then you're forced to talk to people in your past about your past. Right. And that it's just a very therapeutic kind of thing. I think that would be fantastic. I think it's a great idea. Mm -hmm. Um, I never really thought to do it until um, I met Frank McCourton. Who's that? um, He's the author of Angela's Ashes. Okay. And and I met him at, um, at a reading. 
and and it's, it's really funny. We wound up in the same bar afterwards, uh-huh. and I couldn't but get you, to him. You you, know? Were you drinking? At the I time? was drinking at the time still. Yeah. And uh, he came out, and I said, "Mr. McCord, I, I just met you at the reading. I wanted to you know say hello. I wanted to have a drink with you." And he's like, "Oh, you couldn't get through." And I said, "No." And he goes, "Oh well, it's a finer group of people back there, <laughs> you know." <laughs> and he was, he's a funny, funny guy, but yeah. he went through hell. I mean, I don't know if you ever read the book, but I mean, like the, sto- the story is him, him and his family um, surviving. Um, uh, like pretty much a secondary famine in in Ireland during the depression, uh-huh. and uh, and and how his father his father his, his drinking put him in, uh, into abject poverty. Like he had money for booze, but you know the, you know his brothers and sisters were literally dying in the house because they had no food. Wow. You know that kind of horror story, and and um, and he was an inspiration because he was a teacher at um, Stuyvesant, mm-hmm. and he was and people said you know you should write all this down, Frank. You should just write all this down. And he, he created this memoir. And they said, well, you know, why'd you call it a memoir? And he said, well, this is how I remember it. He said, I don't really know if it was exactly how it happened, but this is how I remember it. Right. So this is my remembrance of that. And when he said that, I went, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I never thought of it in those terms. Yeah. You know? And then a couple of years later, his brother Malachi wrote his version. And it's, and it's even worse. <laughs> like, in a lot of ways, he's like, uh-huh. Frank was being nice, you know? Interesting. So you can and, read uh, both versions. Oh, it's, it's amazing. Like, the, the, the perspective of these men. Yeah. Just the, the, the absolute perspective, you know? And they weren't, like, fighting about it. It was, just, it was just, you know, this is what I remember now. Yeah. Well, it's amazing what the brain blocks out just to cope. You know, even, even if you, you know, I'm sure you've been here, even if you're, like, super drunk, and you somehow manage to make it home. You've gotten your keys out of your pocket. You've put them in the door. And your brain is operating and it's seeing things, it's noticing all this stuff, but then it's not in your conscious mind. And I imagine mm-hmm. when you're saying that you sobered up, that all this stuff came back to you. Yeah. I was, um, yeah, uh, uh, colors look different. Mm-hmm. It, it, I don't know how else to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, things just seem more real, more concrete, mm-hmm. and uh, less like in a dream state. Mm-hmm. I just always thought that was being creative. You know, it's like, no, it's just, I was pickled. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, that wasn't creative. That was your ass. Right, right, right. But after a while, when when it's all out of your head and you're not looking to get more, then it's, it's fascinating. Looking Mm -hmm. to get more booze? Yeah, more booze or whatever. whatever Because that's not occupying your brain and like that craving, that constant craving. Right. Like I've never, I've never craved alcohol, Mm -hmm. you know, but I have craved, I have craved that numbness. You know, that, that, you know, like my, my father was an alcoholic and a drug addict and, and his thing was Valium and Johnny Walker red label. Ooh, not a good combination. Actually, a horrible combination and, excuse me, a horrible combination. And, and I know that, that he used to have to have just enough to function because he was physically addicted to it. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, let alone the, the mental state of it all. And, and, uh, and that, and that's, that's the Irish curse. I mean, that really is, you know, yeah. it's like Irish curse isn't like, you know, a little wanker. The Irish curse is, is this kind of thing, Yeah, you know, where it's celebrated and all the music and everything else is just celebrated. Right. And it's like, we shouldn't be celebrating this. Like we can have a laugh about it, but we shouldn't be celebrating this. We can be, you know, our culture doesn't depend on the drugs, right. you know, Colombian culture doesn't depend on, you know, the coca leaf, you know, right. it's a rich culture without that. Yeah. So how do you change? Mm-hmm. You got to rebrand the culture. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think yeah. so. Um, one of the things I, well, it's, it's funny. I thought about this even when I was in high school. And one of the things I tried to do at later in life, even when I was drinking, I never drank on St. Patty's Day. I uh-huh. just refused. And I'm like, I'm not going to be that. 
you know, out of, don't out of tell respect me. to your Irish heritage. Yeah, it's like it's like don't uh, because I'm expected to do it. Right. You know, it's like why aren't you going out of St. Patty's Day? What kind of Irishman are you? I said I don't know a real one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. That kind of thing would drive me crazy, but but now I don't have to worry about it at all because I'm not doing it in the least. Right. Know? And when you say alcohol, when you say you never really craved alcohol, right? I was like, yeah, because you don't have to crave it for that long because it's everywhere. There, there is that. There is that. I mean, I, I mean, I've, I have, I have several bottles of booze in my house right now. I yeah, mean, I mean, just, I, if we mm. wanted booze, we can go downstairs and we could have booze within three minutes. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, 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 mean, I was, I was buying from stores at the time I was fourteen years old. Mm-hmm. I was sitting in bars. Um, uh, one of my favorite things to tell people that, especially younger people, who don't believe that you did this. I was living down at Rockaway Beach. And uh, like a block, like right across the street from like the old Playland that used to be there, mm-hmm. right? Um, this is the summer after my father died. I was 15 years old. And my friend's dads, um, who were all the same age, all grew up in the same neighborhoods with him, they'd bring me, you know, they'd say, hey, come have a drink with us. And they'd bring me to the bar. I'd leave the beach. I wouldn't even have shoes on. Right. Right. And I'd wander into these bars, these old Irish bars. Everyone's smoking, you know. I'm the youngest guy in there. And the bartenders would be like, oh, you're Patty Devaney's son. Yeah, yeah. I owe your father a drink. Here, take this. I'm 15 years old, getting hammered, you know, in places where I shouldn't be at all. But that was just what was done. And that entire summer, I drank for free because everyone owed my father a drink. <laughs> so I, I go, go to Howley's, O'Gara's, Cuckoo's Nest, didn't matter. I got all these different places. And they're uh-huh. like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah but you're, that, you're, you're that guy. Okay, come here. How did you process that as a kid, watching your father mm-hmm. drink himself to death? Um, that sucked. Uh-huh. That really sucked. Um, um, my, my dad actually died um, of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, summer of summer of eighty three, he vanished for like two days, mm-hmm. and when we finally found out what happened, he had he had been mugged, and he wound up in some alley, and beaten half to death. Wow! And um, sick as you know, just you know, and they wound up in a hospital. The whole story of the Good Samaritan, some guy brought him, carried him to a hospital. My, my father was my height. He was six feet tall. He was 280 pounds. So this is not an easy thing to carry. Right. You know, he's yeah. like, you know dead weight of that, you know? And, um, and he said, he said, listen, I, I got to stop this. I have to stop drinking. I have to stop all of this. And he went to AA and he got sober. Mm. And a couple of months later, he started feeling really sick. And by that Christmas, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer and he died the following uh, April. Damn. So he finally got his shit together mm-hmm. he finally got together yeah. and then it was like oh by the way you're gonna die you know and that sucked that's tra- that really that's sucked tragic. yeah i was a sophomore in high school that really sucked yeah you know um i had learned um i i, I had learned some grace from that um uh, one of my best friends in the world chris murphy his his dad had died two years previous when we were in the eighth grade mm-hmm. and he um he was uh, he was like larger than life he was like a world war ii vet he was a cop he was a fireman he was a state trooper and he was the lieutenant at our local firehouse and uh and he died of cancer and and uh that was that that christmas around that christmas time he died and uh and that was that was rough that was really really rough and i remember how you know how that felt and then two years later i was going through that you know was your friend a help to you it was was watching that and then you know and uh and it was kind of weird because because then like um you know it was on the morning of my 30th birthday Mm -hmm. um i was a pallbearer for his mom's funeral Mm. so that was you know so a whole a lot of this kind of thing like it's perspective yeah you know real strong perspective and i I know people you know in their 40s and 50s who never lost anyone Right. And they won't know how to f- how to function. Right. You know, it's like I've been going to funerals since I was three. 
Right. So it's like, okay, well, this is, you know, learning that is really tough, you know, and like, and, and, but, but seeing that example of my friend and his family and like, okay, well, you know, this can happen. This mm-hmm. is real now. So then it happened to me. I'm like, okay, I understand this. This is real now. Yeah. I mean, you as, know? as a cult, as Americans, I feel like we don't deal with death very much. We don't, we don't, and we don't do it with the, with the right way. Yeah. We, we don't, we, we, we pretend it doesn't exist. And we shouldn't talk about it. You right. know, like the way people will whisper the word cancer. You know, they'll right. say, and then, and then he had meningitis, you know, it's like, it's like, that's, we're so afraid of it, but you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be celebrated, but it shouldn't be hidden either. You right. know, people's lives should be celebrated. Right. You know, I mean, when I go, I don't want anyone, anyone talking about any kind of morbid stuff or, or I miss him or that, you know, tell stories, you but know, for me, accepting my impending death helps me celebrate my life. Absolutely. Helps me appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's the only Otherwise, you're dreading it. You're dreading every moment. And you're afraid to do things. Yeah. You know, and I know people who are terrified to do anything. Yeah. And why would you want to live through that? Why yeah. would you want to be that? And they're forgetting that this doesn't last forever. Nope. Yeah. It certainly doesn't. Yeah. And on all the planning that you'll have for the future and all the things in the future, you know, mm-hmm. it's like it's good to have a plan. It's good to be smart about things. You got to live now. You have to live for today and you have to, you know, the people who matter. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to tell them, you know, this is important. Right. You know, what we're doing here is important. Who we are to each other is important. Which is more reason to be sober for it. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. You know, and, and there's, the other component is also, you know, what if something happened to my wife or my mom or mm-hmm. someone I cared about and I'm too drunk to drive somewhere? Right. You know, because I know a lot of parents that are like, listen, I'd love to have a couple of drinks. What if my kid falls off the swing? Right. What do I do? Yeah. I can't help my child because I'm just, I'm, you know. I'm, I'm on my fifth bourbon. You're always on call. Mm-hmm. You're always on call. Yeah. You know, so for the for the rest of my life, I'm going to be on call for one way or another. You know, <laughs> yeah. for the rest of my mom's life, I'm on call there, and my wife, I'm on call there. And, yeah, and that's just it. Just for me, the party's over. It's like it's a it's, for me personally, it's a smarter way to live. Right. You know, it, everyone has a different situation, but it's just a smarter way to live for me. Yeah. Well, maybe the party's changed. Mm-hmm. Where, I mean, now you're getting a lot more rewards. You're remembering all these details and that's going into your writing. Yep. And you've got all these roles. You've got a couple, mm-hmm. you've got a lot of projects in the can coming out, right? I, I have a, I have a bunch. I'm, I'm so fortunate in that. And if I, if I, if I, I you bring up a good point. If I, if I didn't control this years ago, mm-hmm. um, I don't think I'd have half of this <clears throat> ready. I don't right. think I'd have half of this done. You know, and um, and 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 no, and no one wants someone falling down on their set. Yeah, and no one wants that. And what I was what I was thinking earlier is that maybe you've substituted you're self medicating with the alcohol, and maybe you've substituted all these creative uh, outputs. I mean, all writing a screenplay is kind of gets you juiced. You know, when the Absolutely. creativity is flowing, you get juiced. It's a great uh, drug. Yeah, it, it 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 really is, and and the kind of thing like when you're, you know, it's it's five thirty in the morning, and you see, you know, you're hearing birds, and you're like, why are birds chirping? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, that's right, they, you know, it's their world, you know, right, like right. they're waking <laughs> up and they're actually going to their jobs. It's like I've been writing all night, yeah, and that's a great feeling. I'm yeah. fine with that. If I lose sleep over that, that's fine. I don't know, I'll never care care about that. And it is a wonderful kind of outlet, you know. Mm-hmm. I I think I think you have a good point. I probably have been doing more of that to to i guess you know fill that void mm-hmm. you know yeah 
when one door closes <laughs> another one opens because it has to yeah because it pretty much has to yeah. <laughs> yeah or else you're stuck in that damn room for the rest of your life <laughs> yeah so as far as create when you're writing mm -hmm. do you because sometimes i imagine you, you get into a flow and then all of a sudden you're like whoa it's 5 30 in the morning what happens if you sit down to write and it's just uh it's nothing not, nothing nothing's happening I, I can't sit down to write i can't do it um mm -hmm. i try to do something with it every day but sometimes all that comes out is a list of things that I should be writing about when I can, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Um, sometimes an idea will come to me and I'll write it down on pieces of paper all over the place. And that's my writing for the day. Yeah. Um, but to sit down and like, you know, now be creative. Right. You know, it's so hard to do that. Sometimes I can. Yeah. Some people can do that. I mean, Stephen King says he writes, sits down at the same time every day and writes two hours. And I believe that. Right. Because well, the man has 55 books out and, and it's, it's the craziest things I've ever read in my life. Yeah. Um, and brilliant stuff. And, and now, are there uh, any hmm. tools? Because you might not feel creative, but the act of sitting down and writing will just start to get that creative juice flowing. Um, I, I don't really know. I, I really, I, I have a hard time sitting down and just doing it. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes how I'll do it is I'll just start um, uh, talking the characters' lines out loud. Mm -hmm. and i'll even sit I'll, I'll sit on one side of the room or on the other pretending like i'm having a conversation between the two of them yeah um we recently did a, a film festival that um, um my my normal my regular uh director of photography mark boutros uh he runs uh this thing called first contact it's a tiny little festival in new jersey and um it's in this beautiful it's like self-made um theater that this guy art benito created on his campground beautiful place mm -hmm. and we run this this small film festival all weird stuff every year and what i did last year was um i mean this, this past may um i got there the night before and then i booked the hotel room for the next five days and i just hung out there and wrote nice and what i came up with was was you know two short scripts and uh, about 40 pages into my second feature mm-hmm do you find there's something to taking yourself out of your routine? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm I'm an only child who lived alone. Mm -hmm. um, I crave solitude and I crave not being around other people, mm -hmm. and it's very hard to do. Um, you know, when you live with someone, yeah. <clears throat> you know, you can't ask them. Oh, by the way, can you? make yourself scarce for a couple of you know yeah. for, for a day or two it's like you know hi honey this is your home can you leave it's like you right. can't do that's 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 unrealistic yeah um but but i still need that right you know and it's very difficult sometimes but but just breaking out of your pattern and isolating yourself and doing that kind of thing I mean, there's a reason they have writers retreats and writers workshops that are right. in the mountains someplace i mean there's you know and and this this one hotel i found was fantastic it was very quiet it's up in the mountains in Mar mount arlington mm -hmm. and um they had coffee 24 hours a day and it was Perfect. it was just there was nobody in the hotel it was very it was very very quiet and i had a blast you know i was in four in the morning I'm walking around, walking downstairs getting hot chocolate walking back upstairs and <laughs> falling asleep at 9 a.m waking up at two in the afternoon uh -huh. and doing it all again yeah it's sad mm -hmm. we, we kind of besides the alone getting alone time we get desensitized to our environment where it's harder to become creative sometimes. You're absolutely right. And I don't, maybe there's some tools to kick that, but I don't have them right now. Right. <laughs> Besides like going somewhere new, you know, even if it's to a coffee shop and writing or somewhere else or taking a little trip like you did and renting a room, that's. It's, 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 it's sometimes it's needed. Mm -hmm. You know, even if you don't go away, you know, even if it's just, a, even just go to another room in your house. Right. I mean, if you can't, if you can't afford to do anything else, I mean, I could, I could do a trip like that like once a year. You know, I can't afford to go into a hotel for a month. You know, it's like right. I could do that. Like, I could do a week once a year. Yeah. And, 
and uh, but if, even if you can't, you know, you know, just if you have someone you can stay with, stay you know, in, in their guest room for a day or two, you know, right. um, cat uh, sitting, dog sitting, exactly. You yeah. know, be be that New York schmuck and go and write your screenplay in Starbucks. <laughs> I mean, I, I I have been that guy. I I yeah. still continue to be that guy. Yeah, you know, watching all the other idiots writing their screenplays. <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Go to Los Angeles. They're all over. Oh, the I, place. Could, I, I, I couldn't even imagine mm-hmm. the fish out of water. I've, 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 I've been to LAX once. I've never even stepped outside of the airport. Oh yeah, I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, I lived there for four years, and it's it's, oh. it's different now that there's Uber. Uh, when I was there, there wasn't Uber, so it changed that. I heard that has changed a lot, but. You've right. got all these screenwriters driving Ubers with their scripts in the passenger seat, waiting for the big director to come in their Uber. Right. <laughs> I, and, and, and maybe, you know, one of them is going to actually pull that off. More power to them. I wonder. You know, that would be some, that would be some here's some unsolicited crap. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Right. Yeah. I'm sure. I'll, get, I'll get right on that. Mr. Spielberg. Thank you. <laughs> Another exercise is just sitting down and writing in someone else's voice. Which I've done, you know, like, all right, Woody Allen has a strong voice, so I'm right. trying to write in his voice. And you're like, oh, that's like a Woody Allen, those sort of thing. Just to get the wheels greased. I've tr- I've done that. Um, I've tried to write like Doug Adams, mm-hmm. um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I've okay. tried to write in that. And that's a that's a lofty goal because he was a brilliant writer. Yeah. So all I can do is a, is, is an approximation of how he might put things. Right. You know. <laughs> Does that help you get started? Sometimes it has. It yeah. has. Um, I have I have a little practice story that I've been writing. I've been trying to write it as if I was his ghostwriter. Uh huh. And and uh, it's you know all about space travel and like and like the the the, the, the horrible things that can happen to you once you try to break the light barrier yeah. and all this you know, all this <laughs> silly stuff like that. Yeah. But, but yeah, trying to do that. I have done it. I've only ever done it trying to do him, though. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you getting sober and getting all this mm-hmm. renewed creativity. What happened mm-hmm. to your uh, painting and sculpting? Um, I haven't painted in a long time. I haven't. Um, I haven't done woodwork in a long time. I haven't sculpted in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing some cre- some really disturbing um, sculptures for a while. Um, one time, um, and I still have some of these pieces. Um, there was a dentist. Mm-hmm. That lived, that had lived. His office was in the ba- uh, first floor of my mother's apartment building, uh-huh. and he moved, <clears throat> and he threw away all the molds of people's teeth no. that he has kept since the early seventies. Oh, no. did you find and these? Molds? I, call, I called my, I called um, um, my ex up at the time, my girlfriend at the time. I said, "Listen, you got to come over. 
you gotta bring the car and help me right she's like why i said i have 400 sets of human teeth like the molds yeah we have we have to get these so i brought them to a local bar and i'm so damn hammered like we 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 set them up (laughs) (laughs) all these like teeth just like grinning at people it wasn't even halloween it was just fun right and um and uh, yeah, so I, I, what I did was I made these huge sculptures of these like this thing like screaming, and all the mouths are all open, and and you know, yeah. and then I made one, you know, this huge this huge crucifix one. I mean, the thing the thing's four feet tall. It's all these mouths and tongues sticking out. And, yeah, it's just like this like you know big flesh golem thing. It's horrible. Are a lot of your <laughs> screenplays horror or sci-fi? Um, most of the new ones are now are sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I used to write exclusively horror, mm-hmm. but I think that there are people who are doing better horror. Um, uh, uh, partners of mine that I've done with a million things, um, uh, <clears throat> Lindsay Serrano and Manny Serrano. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a, f- a company called Masquerade Pictures, and and they do horror really well. Mm-hmm. They do it. They do it intelligently, and they and now they're doing like horror comedy. They're doing fun stuff, right? But they're better at it. They they live and breathe it. Yeah. So I like to say, you know, you know what, you guys, you're you're going to be making these films. You guys go for it. I don't know anyone else that's writing sci-fi, right. especially like science fantasy stuff, like the really off the ball, off the wall sci-fi stuff. You know, um, Identity Check, the thing we're filming in November. It's the straightest script I've ever written in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, and and even that has a lot of sci-fi elements to it. And it's going to be a very weird kind of thing. Can you mix a horror mm-hmm. sci-fi kind of thing? Oh, I'd love to. I think it's done all the time. Um, uh, yeah. um, I mean, I mean, there's no better example than Alien. Right. I mean, that's that's pure sci-fi and pure horror and and just you know in in the hands of a genius <laughs> you right. know what about comedy sci-fi um i i i've i've liked it like things like galaxy quest and stuff like that it, it can be fun mm-hmm. um more comedic elements of star trek and things like Where that space balls <laughs> mel brooks that's a little too far on the comedy <laughs> um I, i've never considered that a sci-fi film yeah i've not. always considered that a parody yeah but oh, um right, right. but uh but um again uh, you know, in the hands of a genius you know mel right. brooks is yeah how do you? I mean, I mean, when I see the producers, all I have to hear is the first note of "Springtime for Hitler." Uh-huh. And I start to laugh. Yeah, I mean, it, the people are just coming and sitting down into the seats, and I'm doing it now. Right. And you could just, you just know what's happening, what's about to happen on that stage. Yeah, and it's brilliant. You know, that was that was one of my parents' um, uh, first dates um, when they had first got married. Mm-hmm. You know, they dated for six years and then they got married, and that was one of their first movie dates seeing the producers. Yeah, you know, it's when, it, when it first came out, like how cool is that? Pretty <laughs> cool. Know? Test each other's uh, sense of humor right I, off the I, bat. I, pretty, pretty much, <laughs> pretty mm-hmm. much, yeah. But that's uh, yeah, that that kind of stuff. But 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 yeah, horror sci-fi the combinations. Those horror comedy is so hard to write. Mm-hmm. And um, and when when I see someone doing it right, I like to see more from them. Like mm-hmm. like, listen, you got this. Keep doing it. It's hard to write. Timing is so difficult. I mean, you're you're a comedian. You know this. Yeah. And comedic timing is almost impossible to teach. You have to know what you don't. Yeah, and sometimes it doesn't translate onto the page. Like, I've read Seinfeld scripts just to kind of dissect it. Right. And I love the show. And sometimes, unless you know the characters, it really doesn't translate to the page. You just like right. it just sounds like an ordinary conversation, but right. then you're like you see it acted out. And you're like, oh, I get it. It's the inflection of which it's spoken, and that's the sarcasm or whatever. Right. Yeah. It's, mm. That's that's mm. the trick of writing. It, it is, and also know your characters. You know, right. and be able to convey that properly. When you're writing, mm. are you seeing the person? Do you have a good visual image of what they look like? I'm 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 seeing um, I'm seeing the character. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm seeing I'm seeing uh, how they move. 
mm-hmm. I'm hearing their voice. Mm-hmm. Um, unless it's specific, though, that can change. Um, I rarely write um, uh, gender-specific or racial-specific. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that characters are most, unless you're looking for a specific type for a specific reason, right. um, I think characters are best made as templates. And then have people read it, mm-hmm. you know, and have the best person that pulls it off. Yeah. They're the character. Even if they're not what you envisioned, right. let them run with it. And that, that's very gratifying watching someone read your, what oh, you wrote. Yeah. yeah. I can't wait for the first rehearsals for, for a identity check. Yeah. I can't wait because um, the people I have, um, the four main characters are um, Lauren Biasi. Uh, Mark Abbott, who was my lead in Impervia, mm-hmm. um, uh, Matthew J. Kaplan, uh, who was my director in, in uh, It's Time for Tea, mm-hmm. and, uh, and as a very good actor in his own right, and, mm-hmm. um, and uh, a wonderful actress that I love being around and working with um, named Heather Drew. Yeah. And she's phenomenal. And every time she and I have tried to get something going, it either couldn't be produced or it, it was partially produced. And this was, gonna, and we're finally going to have a chance. I'm going to have a chance to direct her in something. Right. And they're the two women are the two lawyers, and Matt and Mark going to be the two billionaires. You ever have this? You ever have someone read <laughs> one of your uh, parts that you wrote and take it in a totally different direction that you didn't intend, and then it's you're like, oh, that's good. I didn't see that point of view, that angle, and then you kind of rewrite it with that new angle all the time. Really? Okay. All the time. And and uh, I've, I've also seen directors say, no, it's this way. Right. And I think that they sell themselves short. I mm-hmm. think that it's a foolish, foolish thing to say, well, I wrote it this way and it's going to be this way. It's like, no, dude, no, 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 don't do that. Yeah. Let, you know, your actors aren't robots. Right. You know, even if they're playing robots, they're not robots. Right. right? Let them, you know, here's the guidelines. Mm-hmm. Perform this. You know what you're doing. If you trust your actors, let them perform it. Yeah. And if they give you something you didn't intend and it's better than you wrote, swallow your pride and say, you got this. And that's a gift to you. You're lucky. Yeah. Yeah. If, I, if you have people that are doing that and consistently doing mm-hmm. that, by all means do that. You know, yeah. we did that with Impervia. Certain things that I wrote and um, uh, Mark, uh, Mark and uh, Dina Demko playing the, the lead couple. And they took it in different ways than I really thought. And... I was like, okay. I mean, some of it was spot on what I thought they would do, mm-hmm. and then they went with different directions with it, and the and the intensity they brought to it. I thought it was going to be intense, and then I saw them. Yeah. And and I'm like, this is a married couple, at their last. This the straw is going to break this family. Right. And they and they conveyed it, yeah. and I loved it. It was awesome. Yeah. It re- it reminds me of uh, as a musician when I'd have because I'm a songwriter when I'd have musicians come to play on my songs i'd always have a part written right mm-hmm. but i wouldn't tell them what it was you know so if i had a string player i'd have the the melody played on a midi keyboard but it would be muted i'd be like here's the song if you have any ideas just go for it because once you tell a musician or an actor what it's supposed to be then you've taken away what they would naturally do absolutely so that was always my tactic was to be like all right here's mm-hmm. the song just play what you feel and let them do a bunch of takes. And then when they're out of ideas, I'd be like, that was awesome. Here's the idea I was thinking, but maybe I'll merge the two. Maybe I'll like their idea better. Sure. But Mm -hmm. but if I did play my idea first, then it might've washed away all their ideas. It very well may have. Um, I'll only stop someone if it's completely 
not what I wanted to see. Right. And right. that happens sometimes. And yeah. it's not because of anyone's skill. It's just because of how they read something. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, I, I've done this in auditions. Um, I, I rarely audition. I usually know who I want. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I'll just say, listen, can you just like, do the lines for me? Let me see it, you know? And sometimes people will take it into an extreme that I know is not going to work. But it's genuinely what they got from it. Right. So then I'll say, well, why, why would you, we go this way with it? You know, how about, you know, and then I'll, then I'll figure out why. I'm like, oh, okay, that, that's kind of cool, you know, but it's always, it's always in the realm of respect. It's always like, listen, it's not like you're wrong. It's like, why, why did you feel that way? Right. Um, but that, re- that rarely happens like that. But, you know, seeing people bring their own thing, that's what you want. That's what you want. Right. Or you, else you just do it all yourself. Right. Do you, do you prefer <laughs> an actor that has a strong vision and, but, but is able to work with you? But do you prefer when they have a strong vision or would you prefer an actor that's like, okay, you just tell me how you want it and I'll do it? Um, I, I really dislike when people, when people have said, well, you know, you're the director, so direct me. Right. It's like, no, dude, all right, all right, all right. I can tell you exactly what to do, Yeah. right? And then you're a parrot. Right. It's like I didn't hire a parrot. And you're I not getting an any you're not getting any buzz from it either. You know, they're right. not making you a better director. Not at all. Now I'm saying okay, now you now I may say okay, when you do this line, you have to make sure you're here because the camera's going to hit the mark. Right, I mean, right. That's that's we, we we can't fudge that. Right. But but the way you walk over there or what you say when you do it, you know, that's got to be you. You have to again, trust your people. If you trust your people, you will always have something more. Mhm. You know, the most I will do really is, is I'll tell people, you know, you know, maybe maybe a little softer in this, or maybe not as intense at this part, but bring it up there. Like I'll change their mood slightly, mm-hmm. but in general, it's, it's like you know, I I don't know if I've ever, um, I can think of one time where I just said, no, we're not doing it this way, because it just because it actually made no sense for the character to do a certain action, right? And it was like, yeah, but this would be great to see it, and I'm just like, yeah, but it doesn't make any sense. I mean, in 12 years of doing this, I think I can think of one time where I was like, no, I, this is not going to work. Yeah. Um, and then that was just an idea, you know, mm-hmm. of an idea of from someone who I took, you know, ten other ideas from, and said yes, you know. So it's like, yeah, right. That person's got to be <laughs> right. Like, it's, like, right. it's like this isn't going to work. No, we're not doing that. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, when people can do that and they bring more out into it, mm-hmm. and that's what you want. If you're not looking for that, you're selling yourself short. You're selling them short, and ultimately, you're not gonna. You know, you're not a you're not a director. You know, you're a dictator. <laughs> <laughs> right? Who the hell wants that? Yeah, it doesn't sound as creatively fulfilling. No, no, not not in the least. Sounds like pretty creepy, actually. But I know people like that. You know, I th- there there are people I've met that 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 judge their success. Of how many people won't speak to them after the film? Uh huh. Right. And it's like, what's wrong with you? It's like, you know how many friends I lost over this, and I'm just like, you shouldn't have lost any. <laughs> like, that's not your freaking goal. Like, you should have made more. Like, you, you know, what's wrong with you? <laughs> right. Like pushing the actors so they cry or break down. Right. Or you know, or not respecting them, or not. You know, it's like that kind of thing. It's like you, you. You never have to show that kind of disrespect to someone. You never right. have to do that. That's like the directing school of mm. pimpery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You you don't want the back of my hand, so you better do it this way. It's like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. I'm not your director. I'm yeah. your pimp. Yeah, really. <laughs> exactly. No, that's that. But I've seen. I, but people say things like that to me. I'm like, what? The like, like big festivals. People right. will talk to me, and I'll meet like seven or eight different directors a day. Yeah. And then, and like most of them are cool, and we talk about things. You know, it's like you know, like, like, like Jeremiah Kip. I love working with him. Mm-hmm. He's most, been on most, the podcast. Yeah, he's one of the most in demand uh, indie directors in New York City, mm-hmm. you know, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he has his own 
series on the ID channel. I mean, this is you know this, yeah, is, this is a great guy, but I've never seen him not be anything but completely respectful to the people who work with. What I've worked with him, that's how he treats me. Right. That's how you know, and that's and that goes a long way. You know, mm-hmm. and those are the people that are successful. This, that's why he can do this for a living. Right. You know, the other guys like, you know, I made a film and I'm going to turn this little short into a feature. I'm going to turn that feature into a bigger feature. And then that feature is going to have a sequel. And it's like, so you have one story and you've lost half your friends. <laughs> Great. Right. right. <laughs> Terrific. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a good inkling into your creativity. What is, uh, what's the next thing to watch out for that's coming out for you? Uh, there's a lot of different things coming up. Um, uh, this year is going to be a big release here. Okay, where can um, people find out about this stuff? Um, they can just uh, c- come uh, to my Facebook page, look mm-hmm. me up, Patrick Devaney. Uh, you can just look me up there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you can look for me. I'm, I'm the first uh, person with my name on IMDb if you want to see what I've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the... Uh, I pronounced mm-hmm. your name incorrectly, Patrick Devaney. <laughs> That's okay. That's De- okay. Devaney. Devaney. Devaney, yeah. That's perfectly fine. Even mm-hmm. my own family members can't sp- say it right. <laughs> and it depends on who you talk to, you know. Uh-huh. Um, if three three different people in my family spell it three different ways and say it three different ways. Yeah, what is that? What am I going to do? <laughs> um, uh, very soon, we are going to have uh, our original um, web series, uh, Zombie Hunter: City of the Dead. We have an eleventh episode that is going to be coming out very soon. Uh, hopefully, within about a month or so, mm-hmm. and um, hopefully sooner. And uh, that's been four years in the making, and it's it's uh, it's going to be pretty spectacular. It's going to be really good. We have a lot of people in that. Um, the the uh, the release of my um, my web series Massive PD is mm-hmm. going to be coming out later this year, um, hopefully by Christmas. And um, and you can see me in a bunch of different things, but also the release soon of uh, It's Time for Tea, mm-hmm. Matthew J. Kaplan's film, which is. Which is fantastic. I've seen some early cuts of it. It's yeah. just really, really cool. Looking and I was great. thrilled to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, he and he brought and it was great. He brought me on as a producer on it halfway through, and I'm like, this is this is wonderful. And you know, before we sh- it was shot, he's like, listen, I want you to help me with this to this level. Mm-hmm. And it's you know, very fulfilling film, and it's gonna it's gonna kill people when it comes out. People yeah, gotta love great. this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and uh, and then we and we shoot uh, Identity Check in November, and hopefully that's gonna be done by uh, the following. November. Identity check mm. is the one you talked about earlier. With right. The, that sounds great. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you, man. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. Thanks for uh, talking to me. Hey, thanks for having me on. Awesome. It's man. been great. Great. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.